what I thought I'd offer you tonight is a, um, a small portion of a Dhamma talk that I had when I was in Burma. I received a lot of talks when I was there, but this one talk really meant a lot to me. It seemed to have a big impact on how I was practicing at the time. It begins that there is a land somewhere, a mythical land, with a very long river and many islands within the river that are built of sand, so sandbars. And for the people who live on these islands, life is very uncertain because the river floods unpredictably. And depending on the height of the flood, different islands go under at different times. But they go about their way and they live their lives on these islands, developing strategies for how to survive the floods. And they can't live too far from the river. They can't live too far inland because they need the water. But if they live too close to the shore, their life is very vulnerable. So the approach that many of them took was how to stay as far away from the river as possible, to be as safe as possible, and yet still have access to the water they need. Swimming was very important, so all the children very early on were given swimming lessons. They would find a little cove on an island where the current wasn't so swift, and they would teach the children how to swim. But one of the greatest fears in everybody that would be that they would fall into the river, either when a flood would come or if while they were gathering water or crossing the island in a place where they got too close, a wave might come up and get them or they might slip down a slippery rock. So there was a constant anxiety. They lived with it long enough that they all had strategies. They tried to develop their swimming skills and their careful walking skills. <laughs> they had special shoes that gripped the rock as best they could. And one time, there was someone born into a family living on one of these islands. And he really wanted to help his people, his family. And he thought, maybe, like everybody, we could build higher and higher houses and get further and further away from the river. But thinking about that, that didn't seem to work because it makes it so much more difficult to go down to the river and get the water. Thought, well, maybe we could get a dam across the river and now the river's too big. So he sat for a long time trying to figure out what he could do to bring some safety to his family and to his people on his island. One thing that he took notice of, <clears throat> like many people did, is every now and then people would be swept down from islands upstream and land on their shores. And then they would tell of what that was like to be completely submerged in the river and how terrifying it was. But it occurred to him that possibly one thing no one had tried would be to consciously enter the river. And so against all wisdom, following this strange inclination of his, he would start at the upper end of the island and not swim in the little cove, but he would jump into the water and swim and see what it was like to actually be in the water and try to catch the bottom of the island before he was swept down. He was practicing that time and people took notice that this was foolish and courageous. They couldn't decide which. But he never ventured that far from shore until he decided that really if he wanted to know the river, 
it wouldn't be the river close to the shore. It would be the river on its own terms. And so one day, he swam very far out from shore, swam down and tried to catch the end of the island that missed and was swept downstream. And immediately he was panicked. Immediately he thought he had been way too brave or foolish. And he thought this time it was foolish. And he found himself floating in the river. <clears throat> and he began experiencing things he'd never experienced on the river near the island, like he went over his first waterfall and survived, but felt the pain of that. And he got trapped up in some driftwood with all of its sharp, jagged, splintery edges. And he began to actually learn while he was in the river. It wasn't what he would have chosen, but by being in it, consciously having chosen to understand the river, he began to learn that grabbing onto something at the bottom of the river and holding on with all of his might didn't work. It just made him drown. <laughs> the, the, uh, there was nothing to be clung to in the river that if it was permanent and stuck to the river, it didn't work in the riverbed. So he learned many things and the Dhamma talk actually that I received went over several nights, so I can't, can, can't give you it all. But one of the things that he learned, probably the most important, was that conquering the river was impossible, but learning to flow with the river was possible. Learning to understand the currents, learning to navigate within the river on its own terms. And then the effort he used was not to conquer the river, not to find some solution that would finally save him from the river, but the effort he could use to actually navigate himself within the river would mean that more time he would be up at the surface floating along. And as he got better at it, he realized that there was actually very little to fear about the river, that once you learn how to swim, flow with the current, float to the top, and of course pay attention to what was around him, not space out, even on the calm bits, but keep his awareness around him, keep his wits sharp, but a sense of relaxation so that he would float to the surface. He was able to survive the river and not with the terror that many people reported when they were swept down from islands upstream. Another strange thing about this river is that it actually goes in a circle. <laughs> so one day he actually was swept back up onto the island that he started at and no one had spent enough time in the river to make a full loop like that. So everybody was shocked to see him one day end up where he had started. When we actually got that back to an island, he was pulled on shore and encouraged to go as deep in as possible. But he no longer had the fear of the river. He had a great appreciation for it. And he had learned things about the river that other people hadn't because they'd always been so careful to be as quick as possible to touch the river, get the water, and leave it. He'd actually begun to swim. And I must say that when I was in Burma, <clears throat> I had done long meditation retreats before I went to Burma. And what I thought I was doing when I went to Burma was quite the opposite of what happened there. It was very challenging to be there. Um, it wasn't the meditation bliss that I had promised myself would be easy to attain there. Um, it was very hot, a lot of mosquitoes. There were lizards that lived in my cabin that would cluck like chickens. There's a, a Muslim village actually very near me. So five days a day, five times a day, I'd hear the, hear the call to prayer. Trucks would go by, beeping their horns. It was actually much more noisy, and my 
ability to just sort of find some meditative peace was very challenged. But when I heard that talk, I decided to enter the river on its own terms, the river of time, of my wakeful life, and really not hope the conditions would be better, which you can spend a lot of time wishing there were less mosquitoes or better mosquito netting or anti-clucking lizard spray or something. Um, And I guess that's just one thing. I was just so challenged when I got there that I couldn't stretch enough to really accept what was going on. I could tolerate it. But when I really let go into the stream of what was actually happening and learned not to fight it and negotiate it, struggle with it, but just flow with what was actually happening, um, like the teachings say, it's quite liberating. And it's a different relationship to life and the challenges that we face. Part of opening up to Burma was opening up to my own frustration of being there, which I was willing to admit to some degree, but um, there were times that it was extremely frustrating to be there and sort of keeping my frustration at bay, thinking it was a hindrance to be suppressed so that I could meditate. But just allowing this flood of you know, impatience and frustration and all the things I was hoping wouldn't be happening in any increasing amount week by week that I was there. But to be honest and flow with that river, that was what was actually happening. There was a lot of frustration. It wasn't all frustration, but there was more frustration that I really wanted to open up to or could open up to skillfully. And what helped me with that, um, with that river analogy, the river parable, was that I spent 10 years of my life canoeing in Canada and did a lot of river work um, for several months every year. And it's quite amazing that you can load all this gear into a canoe. The canoe can end up weighing 800 pounds with all the two people and all the gear and the food and everything you pack into it. These big tripping canoes can weigh a lot. And when you're young, uh, you think that it's really your strength that's going to move this big canoe around. And then the river becomes an extra challenge more than a lake. But when you grow a little older and tired and you don't want to fight that much, you begin to enjoy rivers because they actually carry you. They can carry the entire canoe. And your job is really just to develop an intuition about the river and tune into it. And what's it like to move this big heavy boat in the river so that the river is carrying the boat and you're just keeping it pointed towards the openings. So where's the current going? Where's the opening? Where's the next opening? You can actually even go upstream very easily in a heavy canoe because when water rushes down through a small V, there are these eddies where the water actually goes upstream for, on the side of the river. And to getting in these eddies, you can hit something that's very challenging if you know how to flow with the wisdom of what's occurring you can get in these eddies and be actually sucked upstream. And then your your battle is only through these little Vs where there's you have to push up past this little narrowing part. But it's it can be very counterintuitive when you first begin negotiating uh, heavy white water. Um, and then I began teaching canoeing when I was um, in my 20s to kids and they would make the same mistake. It was always about it was my strength 
battling the river to go upstream, or I had to get the canoe from here to there. And it was just wonderful to see at the end of every summer how much more of a dance it was for these kids. The Buddha once talked about <clears throat> floods, and he lived in the, uh, the Ganges River Valley. So flooding would happen yearly where he was. And it was a problem. People could be swept downstream. The floods that he was more concerned about were the floods of strong, harmful emotion. And so there's a category of emotions that he called the floods. There's a category he calls hindrances. And, um, but this one category, it's just the flood of strong emotion, strong negative emotion. Um, and like that parable, it's not, it's not the river's fault that it has floods. And it's not something to be battled against. And just like in life, your life isn't broken if it has these challenges. It's not that you're doing something wrong, um, no matter what advertising promises or a Hollywood romance promises. As the Buddha tried to describe in his first noble truth, uh, no matter where you go, your life will have these challenges. It will have these floods. But what's more important is not the external challenges we face, but how we face them. It's the floods within. If you're, you get in a car accident and you have the option of, if you're not hurt, of saying, okay, this occurred, it's a drag, but I'm not gonna get that worked up about it. What can I do to get the car towed or how should I approach this wisely as opposed to screaming and rage and being anxious and feeling all the loss of that car accident. And even if you're hurt, it's just that much harder to be present and accept what's going on. You're more likely to be flooded within. When I got back um, from Burma, just before I left, um, I'd been really healthy the whole year I'd been there, but something happened. Um, we still don't know what it was, but I got, I got very ill for about two months. And all the symptoms passed except for this really deep depletion, this um, deep exhaustion. And it's about six years later and I've only recovered about 50% of my strength since then. But that's really up from the about 10% of my strength that I lived with for a long time. And I learned more by being ill. And unfortunately, well, it's fortunate in the long run, but um, I had so much mindfulness training for a full year that when I fell ill, I couldn't help but be very present for it. And it, it's not what I wanted to be present for. Um, it was a front row seat on a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty painful and difficult journey to f actually feel how achy the body was day by day and to feel the mind get so restless and tired and cranky. And like going to Burma and orienting to that river and learning that there was wisdom in that, I didn't really, didn't really see the value of the illness. It seemed too strong to be made much use of, but um, it's just one more section of life to flow through being that ill and opening up to the truth of it. And the things that I had to let go of while I was chronically ill, 
were things that I cherished and thought were worth clinging to, like health or um, my my youth. Uh, <laughs> I was 30 and thought I it's kind of I don't deserve this. Um, this is not really part of the game plan, but it lasted for so long, luckily, that I learned to orient to it. I think that if I had gotten better, I would have really short-circuited the lesson of being that ill. And learning once again that when the circumstances are that strong and you can't do anything about it, that floating is really important. Floating with things as they are and yet as wakefully as possible. So not being apathetic, not... A lot of people said to me, oh, why don't you just surrender? You're really ill, you seem to be struggling. Just surrender to it. And surrender really wasn't that helpful. It was helpful to a degree, but I had actually learned to advocate for myself. And no one... Um, I have chronic fatigue, which is not a really well understood illness. And the doctors weren't that helpful. Um, so while being really tired and achy, I had to learn to also be wakeful um, and compassionate. It wasn't just a matter of sinking back and surrendering and letting go, but um, I also had to tune in to what was happening. And when I would tune in, I would end up struggling because I would see what was going on. It would create a struggle. And I would tune out and relax. Um, there would be sort of this depressive um, letting go and kind of a defeatism. And over a couple of years of trying that, um, I learned to be uh, wakeful and relaxed at the same time. And I wouldn't have thought that that really would have been much of a mindfulness training, um, but it's actually where mindfulness is heading to. And it just was another path of getting there, learning to be quite relaxed but not, not spaced out, present with things as they were. Then the big challenge came when I got healthy enough that I could no longer just hang out in my dad's house being ill. There was a, enough health that I was getting out into the world more, but it was very difficult to be in this culture, um, to be my age looking normal enough. There are a lot of expectations of what I should be doing. And they're very sort of culturally ingrained. So there was the mindfulness training that was kind of counterintuitive to how people, many people behave, especially I was on the East Coast. <laughs> um, I think mindfulness, well, a certain relaxation is missing on the East Coast. Um, I'd had monastic training and that was very difficult to um, to try to come to terms with in this culture. Um, the whole, the goal, the, not the goals, the, um, the ideals of monasticism and what that really um, arose in my heart. It was a very beautiful life. Then to come back to a very materialistic culture was very difficult. Then also to be chronically ill in a culture that is so estranged from illness We've built our houses as far from this river as possible. And what I realized, or many things, but one of the things I realized is that there are these floods. There are external challenges that come to us 
out of our control and they wash us away. No matter how we set up our life, we're a little bit vulnerable to things falling apart. There are internal floods where no matter how much uh, psychoanalysis and meditation and whatever we do, um, we still will have floods in the heart, floods of emotion. That can be very painful. But being back in the world um, as a more and more able body, I began working with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and exploring um, socially engaged Buddhist practice. And that's a that's another kind of fascinating place to be because the the activists often have a lot of passion. They're flooded by a lot. It's hard to find an actual peaceful. Like people like Thich Nhat Hanh are very rare. So a lot of activists are drawn to activism out of very strong and unbearable floods within their hearts, a sense of injustice, a sense of outrage. And there's truth in that, but many of them are quite flooded with um, with emotions that end up draining them. So it's a big challenge to be an activist over a long time and do it from a place of peace. What was interesting would be to be working at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and feel like the war building and to be around all these people who wanted to stop the war. So you see these, this tidal wave coming towards your island and you look at it and you look at the sandbags you have and you realize, I don't think we're going to stop this. I don't think this is coming, but we have to do something. And watching people get sucked into the fear and the outrage about the war starting, and myself included, um, beginning to just, it was incomprehensible that this could be happening. And there was a lot of desperation to prevent this from happening. And in doing that, we all lost our sense of floating. And it's okay to lose it a little bit because you're never perfectly balanced. But um, we all got kind of swept away by this flood that was happening. And then after the flood subsided, and I realized that um, there was very deep non-acceptance that this was happening, and there was very deep non-acceptance that this could be happening, and that there wasn't a solution. I, th I think that people tried very hard to be as peaceful as possible, um, to come from a very deep place in their heart. And not everybody has perfect inner poise, so people recovered well. Um, and that's really the strength of their practice, not that they didn't get swept away, but that their recovery time was um, pretty remarkable given the amount of passion that they had for opposing the war. So uh, as she read in the little blurb, um, I've been interested in exploring what it's like to to be to have to have truths about myself that I think are universal but they're they're sort of alien uh, they're a little bit alien to what's um, presented often in this culture about being an individual, about being successful, about <clears throat> setting goals and achieving them. But coming back to what I learned in meditation, 
that, that very simple act of knowing and flowing at the same time, that whatever I learned in meditation is like swimming, swimming lessons for the river, that a half hour every day or once a week is a time to not neglect your relationship to that type of instability, that type of fluidity of time and what occurs in it, learning to orient yourself to that. Because without that, when you are swept away by a flood, by an external or internal uh, change of circumstance, if it's been a long time since you've been in the water, you'll probably struggle and do um, unskillful acts within the water. But if you can practice being present with the flow of time and all the things that happen within the flow of time of distractions and showing up, emotions that happen, how to ground yourself in the present moment, then when larger challenges do happen, you actually have something to orient yourself to. You're not completely lost. So I'm actually going to in there for a moment and to see if there are any questions about that or anything you want to share about your own experience. Something that occurs to me. I've been sort of thinking about a, um, I guess it's the introduction to a group of sutras. I'm not sure what what the title is. But the question, it's... um, a deva asks the Buddha, um, how did you cross the great flood? Mm-hmm. And he responds, he says, I crossed the great flood without pushing forward and without standing still. Mm. And she asks something about, what does that mean? He said, well, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. And when I stood still, I sank. Mm. So I crossed without pushing forward and without standing still. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about that. I don't know what it means, but I think I'm beginning to get some inklings about pushing forward and some inklings about standing still. Mm. But that does leave how one crosses the river unanswered. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, that that points very carefully to the balance of effort that's needed when facing something very, a large journey like that. And one notion I have about that, it comes up a lot. If you're very equanimous, how can you be socially engaged? Um, Because that's very active. It's more than just doing small problem solving. There's a very intentional step into complicated situations where there's um, often a lot of suffering going on. One thing that was really beautiful about um, being so ill, it's like the... Dharma took away my oars, so I could no longer move my boat around, and yet the boat still moved. And the analogy is a bit more like sailing than rowing, where if you set your sails right, you may not actually travel very far because there may be no wind. But if you set your sails right and there's wind, um, the boat will move quite quickly. Some of the fear we have sometimes of letting go of effort is that we would turn into a blob and we'll only turn into a blob if we let go of effort and then let go of being present and tuned in. But if you let go of effort to force a difference but stay tuned in enough, what 
what wells up in one's heart um, is not a struggling emotion coming from non-acceptance, but a great, um, a great sort of joyous emotion to participate. And that participation often will lead to a change. It's less goal-oriented, it's less of a struggle. And so if you set your sails right and be content, your heart will, will provide, your tuned-in heart will provide winds that will keep you from standing still. It would be impossible to stand still. But it's one of the greatest fears I think we have in the West and maybe more so in this culture, though maybe less so on this coast, <laughs> is this fear that um, if, I don't, if I don't put in effort every day, I would sink. And um, there actually is something to uh, less, less forceful effort and more um, tuning into the flow of the river you're in. If, you, if the river is providing the big movement, then you're just turning the boat to stay in and moving it a little bit side to side, stay in the current. Or the sailing analogy, where you know, you're just making sure your heart's oriented, you're setting the sails, setting the direction you want to go, but let the passion, the inspiration, that would well up very naturally in a wakeful heart. Um, let that be what motivates you. Because then when it, when it dies out, there's no... There's no loss. It's just that was the wind of the day. So, you know, I'm here to. Um, I, I used to work in a homeless shelter for teens, and it was just this, you'd see these teens sinking. You'd see them in such horrible situations, and I'd want to make a difference, and often I couldn't. Anything I worked hard to construct to make a difference often would fall apart. But when I learned to align myself with the teen and be less goal-oriented, but more heart-connected, that heart connection would, would just sort of be flooded with inspiration to really be there for that team and see if we couldn't come up with a solution. And that actually made more of a difference for that team than any placement I could have given them or any nurse or social worker I could have gotten them to is having that type of connection. So it's something I'm exploring a lot, especially at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, again, because it's so intentional about being very active and engaged, but it's Buddhist engagement. So it's got this great thing built into it where um, peace is the way. How could peace be the way? Because if peace is the way, then I can't, I don't know if I'm gonna have the same impact. Um, So there's a great exploration there. I think she, you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what makes I teach parties for me is when I have this like pain or aching it's just very frustrating and I wonder how much you were able to do that when you were when you were so ill. There are <clears throat> um there are couple different schools of thought about pain and working with pain. And I'll, I'll share what my particular experience has been, but there are still people who work with it very differently than I do. Um, there are warrior schools of meditation where not the pain becomes something 
that that forces you to to be present in a way that um, without pain we tend to uh, space out a little bit. And I tried that when I was younger, and I know people who've tried that their whole lives, and it's been their path, and they've developed a lot of strength around working with pain. But my understanding now, having been as ill as I've been, is that you don't want to be a pushover with small discomfort and keep shifting and adjusting, because then you're you're still kind of shying away from and looking away from maybe something that's just true about your body, that there are times that it feels good and times that it doesn't. But any kind of chronic pain, uh, reoccurring pain, or any type of severe pain, um, I think it's a bit neglectful not to um, respond to it. So like an itch on the tip of your nose can drive you crazy, but it's not going to kill you. But um, pain you might feel in your joints while you're sitting uh, or in certain muscles might need some attention. And how you bring your mind towards that pain um, there's a lot of growth in how you'll relate to your own pain. And we often start in one place of disliking it and fighting it or caving in and feeling like, oh, I'll never be a good meditator of too much pain or um, I can't stand this body or whatever. There might be some, some relationship to pain that will evolve over time into something being more receptive to the fact that the body's hurting. So I guess... I guess it would depend somewhat on the pain that you're having, but if it's chronic or reoccurring pain, um, the most important thing is the attitude and the relationship you have to it. And if by sitting still and trying not to um, be a wimp about feeling pain, you end up making your heart like stone. You know, so you sit hard with it and you're not going to move and there's this pain and you're battling it. Um, you can be stiffening your heart and it doesn't actually make you more vulnerable and open to life um, unless the pain ends up winning and you kind of collapse and go through a depression and you know, and then you wake up from that depression and you're kind of soft and open. And some people, that's their openings. They work hard with pain and the pain ends up kind of defeating them and then it kind of cracks them open a little bit. And um, But I would recommend making sure your relationship to the pain you're having is very uh, uh, soft, gentle, and forgiving to a part of your body that's hurting that much. And if you actually have that going on in your mind, in your heart, then when you pay attention, that attention won't be about a struggle. It won't be about beating it, overcoming it, changing it. It will be true acceptance. And in that relationship, there's a lot of... um, tenderness that you'll have towards yourself that you can't develop when you're healthy. It's very hard to be tender towards yourself without a reason to. It's a little bit abstract if you're healthy and having a good day and everything's going your way. You know, you can be tender to yourself, but it, it, it's not really what's required in the moment. But the tenderness you have towards yourself when you're uh, feeling pain or when you're sick, um, that tends to transform the heart. Um, into an authentic tenderness and care for yourself. And that relationship to yourself, when you start seeing pain in other people, becomes very um, very instantaneous to feel a lot of empathy or sympathy with other people in pain. But if you've ended up fighting the pain or being very 
um, antagonistic towards it. And some people really recommend that. They really recommend. They don't. They don't. They're not trying to recommend the antagonism, but they're recommending a warrior spirit. My experience has been that people tend to um, develop a very stone cold, but strong heart. So that that hasn't been what's worked for me. I don't know if that was helpful. Oh, you know. interesting because at the real the lowest part of it I was only kind of semi conscious actually I was I would sleep like 14 hours a day it would be really horrible sleep and then I would lie on a couch with sort of dim bulb of consciousness going on and my big complaint my big dharmic complaint was that I don't have enough juice in my mind to be aware I'm just out of it so this is this can't be productive I can't be doing much with this because I don't have the energy to do much with a mind that tired and groggy and spaced out and semi-conscious. And yet that was the, that was really the last thing that I was holding on to. You know, when I was young, I could be a monk, 227 rules, I could follow them and I could meditate and I could sleep less and I could eat less. There's a lot of things I was doing to myself and one by one as I got ill, I didn't have the willpower to do that and I after all couldn't sit, couldn't do walking meditation, but I was still following the precepts. And one by one the precepts started caving in because I just didn't have the energy around certain certain circumstances to be making any choices. So I found myself kind of flowing into behavior that I thought I had left long ago. But I was still aware enough and that was sort of the last thing, at least I know what's going on. And then when I got so tired and groggy and so spaced out that there was just, there was such a dim, it's like one neuron had, had its light on and it was firing randomly. <laughs> it's like, what, you know, what, what good is this? this? This is nothing. There's nothing to be made of this. There's nothing, this is just abject suffering. There's nothing noble about this. And then when I finally surrendered that, which is probably, I, both my parents are academics and so the clarity of the mind was sort of the highest um, priority growing up and I instilled that, that having having some awareness was important. But awareness is not the key. Awareness is a tool to not cling. And more important is not clinging. Awareness helps to not cling. But if your awareness is a, an act of clinging to clarity or being present, then you're gripping the hammer too hard. You're you know, you've got this one tool and you think without this tool I'm nothing. But the whole idea of this tool is to stop clinging. So even clinging to meditation was a problem. And then when I relaxed that attitude, then when I went back into and I got a little more healthy, whether I was mindful or not was not important. Whether I was clinging or not was important. And once that becomes the priority, clinging or not clinging, then a lot of things line up. Whether you're using mindfulness to support I don't want to be, I, I hate the side of myself with mindfulness, I'm, I don't have to do that that much. That's nothing about clinging in there. You're not using the wisdom of non-clinging, you're just not being hindered by emotion. But when you're really developing non-clinging as your highest priority, then parts of the practice really line up beautifully and mindfulness becomes a very important tool to non-clinging. 
but you don't relate to mindfulness and awareness um, with any type of identification or hope that you'll be more mindful day by day and more judging of yourself when you're not. So it's the non-clinging that's important. It doesn't make mindfulness less important. It's just that it has to be the tool of non-clinging, not the actual goal itself. I don't know, did that, did that touch? Um, that, that's probably the Goenka style. Um, that's a very powerful style. And <clears throat> like, any, like any good meditation school, um, it's very consistent within itself. And so the relationship that he talks about within that technique um, is appropriate. How to not um, sink your attention into incredible pain, how to keep moving around it and finding other places of more subtlety. And as a, within that school, if you stay within that school, you develop um, tools of flowing. It's really, you still have a flowing awareness within your body. You're just not going to places that would really hook you until they start to kind of open up a little bit. And what you're doing is, um, is you're really strengthening the mind to be aware and non-attached so that it can actually, at one point, be strong enough to do the same thing with a very um, very tight knot of pain. And when the mind is strong enough, it can actually treat that area of pain very much like um, it just flows and begins to break apart a little bit. Yeah, and it can move apart. There are There are pains that are stronger it, would t- it might take, there are pains that, um, that often when we're young, we don't feel deeply chronic pain unless we have a chronic illness. Um, so that technique was very good for me until I started hitting the type of pain that was just, um, it would consume all my body. So my, my whole body would be nothing but solid pain. So there wasn't really anything, there was nowhere else to go besides outside of the body. My mind would be too exhausted not to get sucked into the various of pain. So there are, there are experiences of, of physical unpleasantness that you either have to be um, 
an incredible master of that technique to use that technique with that pain, or there are other approaches to how to use that, to how to work with really deep pain. And people who are loyal to that school, um, if you stay over the decades of practicing that, you can handle almost any pain that comes up to the, in the body. So it's it's not a lim- that school is not limited. You can really develop all the way with that one technique. Um, just that some people hit pain early on that's so strong that <clears throat> that technique tends not to be a place that they're maturing much, that just scanning the body um, and moving around the pain and the relationship you have to pain, it's a bit it's a bit too overwhelming. And the time it takes to actually develop that, you get you get too disheartened to stay in that technique and in that school when you're drawn, when there are bigger obstacles than that technique can address more immediately. So to the degree that it's actually working for you and you can keep up with whatever dis- discomfort's going on in your body, then um, every day that that's true, then the technique is appropriate for what you're up against. And if you ever get to a place where after you're hitting a type of pain, like let's say you, or you really hurt your knee or something like that, and you get into a chronic pain situation where it doesn't, after a while, break apart, um, then you might start to feel the edge of what you and that technique can do with some of the things that are going on in your body. But until that point, it's not. And that may never come for you. It, it comes for other people, though. It seems like the objective would be to learn the human way about the practice and then carry it through doing the practice enough or really internalizing the training to the point where at any point you are in quantum yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> if there were, it's like a student's learning math. Um, it's very progressive what you do, grade by grade by grade. And if someone stalls at a certain grade, just expecting that they could go on further, or just holding them at that grade and giving them the same lessons over and over, it might not be productive. They might actually need a different approach if they want to go on in math than just doing the same lessons over and over. Yeah, it, all of our equanimity is growing deeper and deeper with these practices. <clears throat> but if you're, if you're, if sitting still with that technique is so unpleasant, it won't end up developing much equanimity. It'll develop willpower. It'll develop determination. These, all these things you have to use until the equanimity is strong enough. And it just may be that you could spend decades kind of not developing much more equanimity, but while you're sitting there with strong pain, you're developing other, other attitudes. And it's possible that to get to true equanimity, you wouldn't need more willpower. You might need more softness. You might need more forgiveness. You might need more spaciousness. You might need a certain rebalancing, and just that one technique um, may not address the uh, whatever is keeping you stuck at a certain level with that. And I know people who use in the Guenka schools who are so um, sophisticated at it that they can help people rebalance within that technique so that they stay within that um, body sweeping, and they learn to do more metta practice because that might really soften their attitude and softening the attitude might actually soften what's making that pain so stuck. But you actually may need a tool that's not even 
all that developed in that school. Um, and some people need that and then might feel a little guilt or failure. But it's really just about being skillful to find another school that might give you the tool that you need. There was another quick question I can answer it, but we're getting close to the end. Um, it was a real pleasure, actually, to come down and meet you all and sit with you all. The room felt really silent, so always appreciative to come down and meet another Sangha that's practicing. One thing I wanted to um, to mention is that there's a teen meditation retreat coming up, actually two of them, one in June and one in July, and there's flyers up on the table. And whatever dana might have been offered tonight for the teacher, me, um, I'm going to dedicate all that dana to a scholarship fund for the teen retreat so that teens with... Uh, have lower income can attend the retreat. So um, it'll be a team effort all together. I'll give a little bit, you'll give a little bit. We'll all give towards the scholarship. Um, it makes a big difference for these kids and when they get it early on, before they've developed certain attitudes about what life is about, it um, it's very validating for them because a lot of them feel it intuitively but are not getting that reinforced, that um, there are different value sets that they could be oriented towards. And they're actually quite natural to many of these teens, but they're not the ones getting validated. So having them come to a five-day retreat um, has really started to change their lives. So anything you could offer to help more teens come on these retreats would be greatly appreciated. Did you have anything else? Well, then let's, uh, let's just practice once more flowing in this river of experience we have. So I'd first make sure that you have a flowing attitude. And you might, if you were on a raft flowing down the river, river's doing all the work. And it's the same with our lives. The whole setup is that we're flowing through time. We're not creating it. So first flow through time and then tune in to make sure that you're aware while you're flowing. And the best place to find that often is to flow with your experience of breathing.